Let's take our Bibles and turn to Exodus chapter 8 this morning. Exodus 8, we're going to read verse 20 through 32. We're returning not only to the book of Exodus, but to this pattern of plagues, and we come to the fourth plague of the Exodus, where the Lord God is, is striking Pharaoh and placing his finger on the false gods that these Egyptians worshipped. And one by one, he exposes them to be powerless. And while he shows them powerless, he reveals himself to be the one true God that's capable of not only striking a plague, but stopping the plague. Fourth, we come to this plague of flies. And they are sent in order to make it known that God alone is the creator and the protector and the ever-present one with his people. So let's read in Exodus chapter 8, beginning at verse 20. And remember, this is not man's thoughts or reflections on God. It's not even just a historical document. This is God's word written for God's people. Then the Lord said to Moses, Rise up early in the morning and present yourself to Pharaoh as he goes out to the water. And say to him, Thus says the Lord, Let my people go that they may serve me, or else, if you will not let my people go, behold, I will send swarms of flies on you and on your servants and your people and into your houses. And the houses of the Egyptians shall be filled with swarms of flies and also the ground on which they stand. But on that day, I will set apart the land of Goshen where my people dwell so that no swarms of flies shall be there, that you may know that I am the Lord in the midst of the earth. Thus I will put a division between my people and your people. Tomorrow this sign shall happen. And the Lord did so. There came great swarms of flies into the house of Pharaoh and into his servants' houses. Throughout all the land of Egypt, the land was ruined by the swarms of flies. Then Pharaoh called Moses and Aaron and said, Go, sacrifice to your God within the land. Moses said, It would not be right for us to do so, for the offerings we shall sacrifice to the Lord our God are an abomination to the Egyptians. If we sacrifice offerings abominable to the Egyptians before their eyes, will they not stone us? We must go three days' journey into the wilderness and sacrifice to the Lord our God as He tells us. So Pharaoh said, I will let you go to sacrifice to the Lord your God in the wilderness, only you must not go very far. Plead for me. Then Moses said, Behold, I am going out from you, and I will plead with the Lord that the swarms of flies may depart from Pharaoh, from his servants, and from his people tomorrow. Only let not Pharaoh cheat again by not letting the people go to sacrifice to the Lord. So Moses went out from Pharaoh and prayed to the Lord, and the Lord did as Moses asked, and removed the swarms of flies from Pharaoh, from his servants, and from his people. Not one remained. But Pharaoh hardened his heart this time also and did not let the people go. Here's God's word. Let's pray. Father, as we come to your word, we come as those who need the ears to hear. And we know that your spirit is the only one who grants us those ears. We pray that your spirit would open our ears and our minds and our hearts that we might receive your word uh, planted tenderly there. And I ask, Father, as a, as a wretched, sinful, crooked stick, that you would use me, in spite of who I am, to point this narrow way to Christ Jesus. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.
Here's our rubric. Each plague is a deliberate touch from Yahweh, the great God Almighty, onto the false gods that the Egyptians worshipped. And so with each plague, God points to the various false gods, and He invites you from your own heart to examine, are there ways that I'm tempted, like they were, to worship false gods, idols that were never really intended to be worshipped? And then as God exposes the idols of your heart, you want to be tender to the work of His Holy Spirit. When He points those idols out, we want to bathe them in the blood of Christ, let them be washed and cleansed so that we might hold His good gifts really loosely in our hands. We don't want to twist or deify things that God has not made to be worshipped, things that never satisfy our hearts. Now, that's our rubric. Here's where we're headed. God is more than an insurance policy. It was my very first day of work starting to sell group health insurance, and my boss called me in to his office, and he said, okay, here's lesson one. There really is no such thing as insurance. That was an odd thing to say because the man had made his entire living selling something that now allegedly didn't exist. But he went on to explain it like this, insurance companies do not take genuine risk. They hedge their bets. And so if you want to be insured, you pay them a lot of money, and then they get to control all the factors to make sure that they don't pay out very much of it. And each policyholder is, for them, just simply an income source. And as an income source, they get to make sure that they never really significantly lose. Now, I mention that because in some ways that's the, Egypt, the way the Egyptians lived. They, they lived like a modern insurance company, and that is they, they lived in a world that is mostly chaotic, and most Egyptians decided through this polytheism, this worship of many gods, to spread out the risk over many different gods and many different idols so that they wouldn't have too much exposure to the natural world in hopes that in the end they would never lose. To them, that made sense. Here's a God for the water. Here's a God for the dirt. Here's a God for the sky. Here's a God for reproduction. Here's another God for protection. There's another God for eternal life, which is what makes faith in the one true God starkly different. You do not have, by following this one true God, to hedge your bets. You don't have to, uh, to reduce your risk because this is a God who is one and He is completely reliable. And so for the Christian, Exodus chapter 8 is a profound comfort because here God proves Himself protector of His people and giver of eternal life. So today we're going to examine this passage under three headings, distinction, dialogue, deliverer. We'll start with distinction. Uh, if you studied chapter, excuse me, the, the previous portion, we don't have a clue what happened with the third plague. There's a chance that it went on for quite some time. All we know is that Pharaoh's heart remained hardened in the midst of it. And it's the condition of his heart that helps us begin to recognize that there's a pattern in these plagues. It's a set of three. Here's what I mean. The first, fourth, and seventh plague always begin with Moses going to stand in front of Pharaoh or to present himself before Pharaoh, and it's always in the morning. 
And that is God's way of making a very direct confrontation to the man who thinks he's God and believes he owns these people. And then the second, fifth, and eighth plagues all start with Moses going in each time. The text says Moses went in to Pharaoh. That is, he's drawing closer. The point God's making is that he is pressing the issue on the stubborn king, and it's coming closer and closer to his heart. And then finally, the third, sixth, and ninth plagues strike every time with no warning. So that we are always meant to see that the second and third in those patterns come like a one-two punch. And Pharaoh is meant to be stunned by that. I know y'all like my combination. I'm pretty agile. It's this pattern, these waves that come that highlight two important points. Number one, Pharaoh is completely stubborn. And in his stubbornness, he is solely responsible for his sin and the consequences. But the second thing that the wave teaches us is that God wins. He both judges his enemies and also rescues and redeems his children, which points us to a distinction. We've alluded to this over the last several weeks, but here God makes it very clear. God said, Moses, confront Pharaoh as he goes down to the water to worship his false god in the morning. And I want you to listen to God's distinction. My people versus your people. Verse 20, let my people go that they may serve me. Or else, if you will not let my people go, behold, I will send swarms of flies on you and your servants and your people and into your houses. And the houses of the Egyptians shall be filled with swarms of flies and also the ground on which they stand. But on, the, on that day, I will set apart the land of Goshen where my people dwell so that no swarms of flies shall be there. That you may know that I am the Lord in the midst of the earth. Thus, I will put a division between my people and your people. Now, when it comes to salvation, that's always the way God has worked. And it's always the way that he continues to work. He clearly makes a distinction between those who are his people and those who are not his people. Trace this back to Genesis. Genesis chapter 12 or 15 or 17, God comes to this man who was a pagan, worshiping false gods, named Abraham. And he offers a covenant. He offers a relationship with him. He says, you believe me for my words, and I'll count that as righteousness. And then all those promises of salvation were passed down to Abraham's offspring, his descendants, to Isaac and to Jacob, and anyone else who would come and embrace those promises by faith that were offered to Abraham. But you remember the story. The Bible is incredibly honest now, these men are not men who are somehow worthy men. We've studied their family line. We've seen all of the dysfunction. And, and you remember Jacob, whose name in itself conjures up dysfunction and sin and memories of lying and cheating and stealing. It's really no surprise that his 12 sons emulate his pattern of sin. But in God's providence, he causes them to escape a famine and come to Egypt, which again is a distinct picture of God's care specifically for this people. It's just mercy and grace. These are God's people. They dwell in the midst of the Nile Delta in a place called Goshen. And here pictured in real life detail is God's forever plan of salvation. Fast forward. 
Pharaoh enslaved God's people physically. In much the same way that Satan enslaved God's people spiritually in the bondage of sin. And God comes to Pharaoh and he says, you let my people go that they may serve me. In much the same way that Jesus Christ comes and his cross is a kind of demand from God to Satan. You let my people go from sin that they may serve me. Held fast in sin. It's the Holy Spirit who comes And gives you the ears to hear God's demand against Satan. When God says to him, you must let my people go. It's the spirit who awakens you and says, that's my Lord. I want to follow him. It's his death that paid for my sins. It's his resurrection that frees me from sin and death. So just as the nation of Israel was to follow their shepherd Moses out of Egypt. We are called to follow the good shepherd as Jesus calls us out and delivers us from the Egypt of our sin. But not everyone follows because there's always been a distinction between God's people and those who desire to remain in Egypt. But why flies? I mean, why is the fourth plague flies? There's a lot of possibilities and there's a lot of uncertainty. Those who study Egyptian culture tell us that certain Egyptians believe that there was a a particular type of fly who deposited his eggs on other living creatures. And this, they believed, was a physical manifestation of the goddess Uachit. She was goddess of the sky. Others look at this passage and they say, no, that's not... What's happening? They, they think the fly was, in fact, a, a beetle called a scarab. And through a series of odd observances of this beetle, they notice that the beetle takes the dung from the ground and rolls it into a ball. Clearly, this is a physical representation of this god whose name is Kepri. Kepri is signified in the beetle, and and just as the beetle rolls up this ball, so does Kepri roll up the sun and bring it out from the underworld so that it rises to new life every morning. Third option is Beelzebub. Some Egyptians worshipped him as if he was the protector and guardian of their land. He was called the, the Lord of the Flies, and he was thought to be, for them, like an an insurance policy. You know, if you have a natural disaster, a fire, a flood, or insects which come and ravage your crops, you cry out to Beelzebub. And Jesus tells us in the New Testament that Beelzebub, this Lord of the Flies, is another name for the Prince of Demons, which reminds us that all of this idolatry in Egypt is really just worshiping the the, the Prince of Demons himself. People who go to beetles and flies for spiritual matters like protection and eternal life and resurrection, the point would have to be clear if suddenly your land is overrun by flies. God proves himself the protector of his people and the giver of eternal life, and nobody else can make that promise. He does it by making a distinction. There's one place in in all of Egypt where flies do not consume man and beast. 
One place where they are not under your feet and over your head. One place where they do not enter your house and ruin your crops. One place, and that place is Goshen. The little spot where God's people dwell. Two final comments I want to make about this distinction. One by way of conviction and the other by way of grace. The Egyptians constructed these idols to serve as insurance policies. If one God failed them, they would turn and they would cry out to another God. This one for creation, this one for protection, this one for resurrection, this one for comfort, this one for good luck and fortune. And yet as Christians, we go, oh, we, that's silly. We just worship one true God. And yet we pause and we realize that quite often we are tempted as they were tempted to set up a backup plan. I wonder if you have fallback gods when God doesn't provide you with circumstances you like. You have other options to pursue. Lesser gods to heal your broken heart, to console or comfort you. Maybe it's another person. Maybe it's a substance. Maybe it's an image or habit to deal with emotions that you don't really know how to process. You have places to run when life and, and God disappoint you. They're usually physical and emotional. But the nature of idols is that they, they almost always feel spiritual. They feel as if they can do something deep in our hearts. I wonder if you have fallback gods that you rely on when things are unstable. Maybe you dive more deeply into your work or into activities or you buy things that you don't need. The heart of idolatry is really always that while we're setting up these gods, all we're really doing is worshiping ourselves, hoping that they will provide peace and security and joy so that I can be content as the center of my own world. And so perhaps it's you who needs to let you go to be freed to worship and serve not these lesser things, but the one true God. For after all, you're not your own. Now, the second comment, by way of grace, God gives the reasons for this distinction in verse 22. He says, I'll set apart the land of Goshen where my people dwell so that no swarms of flies shall be there, that you may know that I am the Lord in the midst of the earth. Pharaoh says, I mean, excuse me, God says to Pharaoh, I want you to know my identity and my presence which means he also wants you to know his identity and his presence. His identity. This is a God of, of power who alone controls every force of creation from the longest river on the face of the earth to the little tiniest fly that buzzes around your ear. And then he wants you to know his presence. He is near to his people. So that when we would be tempted to set up false gods as, as backup plans, he says you don't need anyone else for your protection. You don't need anyone else for your daily life renewal. You don't need anyone else for the last day resurrection. Here is a God who presents himself as one of power and also of love. What in the world did Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob have to offer this God? 
They were no better than anyone else on the face of the whole earth. And then you look at the Hebrew people and you say, what is it about the Hebrew people that makes God decide to to make a distinction between them and the other nations of the world? Are they less fickle? Do they worship less idols? Are they any less perverse? Not at all. This is the profound way that God's distinction works. It is based solely on his decision to love and quite honestly, nothing else. Yes, Pharaoh received exactly what he deserved, but the Hebrew people received infinitely greater than what they deserved. And so like you who trust in Christ by faith, you receive not what your sins deserve, but you receive mercy and grace far better than what your sins deserve. That's the pattern of redemption that's offered here and also carried through the Scriptures to Christ. God proves himself protector of his people and giver of eternal life. We've seen the distinction. Now I want to draw your attention to the dialogue. I use this old Dutch commentator uh, to study this particular passage, and somebody's translated his Dutch into English, and so I can't tell if his language was this severe in Dutch or whether that's just the way the translator says it. But listen to this. He's describing this fourth plague. He says it's a repulsive picture. Vermin take over the whole land of Egypt. And these loathsome creatures do not stop by the houses, but they go in and they attack all the occupants high and low. Everywhere the offensive bugs cause ruination. And they are so aggressive, there is no way that people can keep them away. Even the ground they walk on is claimed by these ever-present pests. That's vivid. Look at verse 24. Throughout all the land of Egypt, the land was ruined by the swarms of flies. Unless you think these are just annoyances that are buzzing in the ear, Psalm 78 says that the flies devoured the people, virtually eating the Egyptians alive. And then in the midst of that suffering, the gods of Egypt are put to shame. And so it's masterful storytelling when the narrator invites you and me to come into Pharaoh's house and listen to the dialogue between Pharaoh, who is deeply annoyed and bitten by these flies, and Moses and Aaron, who stand there unaffected. Verse 25, go, sacrifice to your God within the land. I presume Pharaoh thought this was a suitable compromise to make, but it is not suitable It was made clear already in the book of Exodus. If you go back to chapter 5, verse 1, God says, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, let my people go that they may hold a feast to me in the wilderness. Or maybe you remember chapter 6, verse 11, go in, tell Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to let the people of Israel go out of his land. So Moses tactfully explains why this can't work, and he first gives a pragmatic reason. We learned in our study of Genesis chapter 43 and 46, the Egyptians view the Hebrew people as as unclean, as sort of gross, uh, because they're shepherds, they deal with animals. And of course, in a culture where people worship images of cows and bulls and goats as, as sacred representations of their God, Moses says, we can't sacrifice those, your people would kill us. But the bigger issue is found in verse 27. We must go three days' journey into the wilderness and sacrifice to the Lord our God, 
as he tells us. See, it hardly matters what Pharaoh suggests about worship. If the Hebrew people are to live like God's people, they must do what he commands and worship him in the way that he wants to be worshipped. I mean, look at the picture. Pharaoh is eaten up with, with flies, and he still thinks at some level he can bargain with God. Verse 28, so Pharaoh said, well, I'll let you go to sacrifice to the Lord your God in the wilderness only. You must not go very far away. Plead for me. Three applications I want to make from this dialogue. First, the Hebrews' identity as God's people means that they are to be summoned out of the house of bondage. There are lots of people who want the identity I'm a Christian, but they do not want the transformation that goes along with it. They want to be called Christians, but not if it means leaving their sins behind. Listen to how Charles Spurgeon said it. God's demand is not that his people should have some little liberty, some little rest from their sins. No, but that they should be called and go out of Egypt. Christ does not come to make people less sinful but to make them leave sin altogether. He doesn't come to make them less miserable, but to put their miseries right away and give them joy and peace in believing in Christ. The deliverance, he says, must be complete or there's no deliverance at all. Here's where I find myself convicted by Exodus 8 and by this 19th century Baptist preacher. There's some ugly part of me, maybe it's in you, that welcomes the identity of Christian more than it welcomes the transformation that goes along with it. As if some half-asleep, partial obedience in Egypt is just as good as life in the promised land, free from all of it. As if God wants for us to have the name Christian, but have no change. What he wants and what he intends for us is a full, complete deliverance from the Egypt of sin. And if that's what my Lord wants, then I must want that myself. I do not expect to be fully and completely sanctified in this life. But... My feet must be walking out of Egypt currently, today. They cannot be standing still and and be content as if I can negotiate with the Lord from the place of slavery. Second application. It's always God who gets to tell us how he wants to be worshipped. That's the pressing matter of verse 27. It says, as he tells us. And when folks begin compromising with what God's Word actually commands, they will certainly do that in worship. How you worship God is decided by what He commands you to do in His worship. That's actually why the early church began singing and reading God's Word and praying and preaching and confessing sins and taking the sacraments. Do you think the theater was not popular in ancient Greece? It was the entertainment of the day. 
Why did Christians not go, you know what we could do is we could insert a little drama in this portion, a little clip from a play, and that could help me illustrate what I'm trying to say, or we could even cut a movie clip and drop it right in here. Why didn't they do that? Because none of those elements were prescribed in the Scriptures. If God is the one you worship, then He's the audience. And so we don't create what we think might work well or what we think might draw people. He tells us in His Word how He wants to be worshipped because He's God, and I'm not. I wonder if your worship is God-centered, as verse 27 says, as He tells us, or is it man-centered the way that Pharaoh might suggest? Here's how you could do it. Third application, Pharaoh is a great reminder that when God conquers you, when he brings you to your knees in submission to his reign, you don't get to control what service to him looks like. You notice with the same breath, he says, don't go far away. But he also says, plead for me. Ask Yahweh to have mercy upon me. This is the anti-type of the Christian He's the opposite of who you and I are. When you cry out to God for mercy, you then surrender the arrogance to tell him on what terms you will serve him. This dialogue reveals Pharaoh's heart, doesn't it? And then that way it ends up being a warning for you. If you want God's mercy if God's Spirit has brought you to saving faith in Christ, if you are currently being called out of Egypt, don't stand on the edge of the border and say, I don't know, Egypt looks pretty good. Don't bargain with God in order to try to maintain control of your life. He still wants to try to do life on his own terms. That's Pharaoh's rule. He is in severe need of deliverance. And if you today are in severe need of deliverance from your sin, would you please relinquish your perceived control? Would you please relinquish your prideful bargains and come running out of Egypt to Christ, who is waiting in the promised land? God proves himself protector of his people and giver of eternal life. Distinction, dialogue, we're going to close with deliverer. There's a little word only that... Pharaoh keeps using, it's one of his favorite words, verse 28, 28, only you must not go very far away. He's trying to hang on to control. And Moses decides to use the exact same word in response to Pharaoh, verse 29. Moses said, behold, I'm going out from you and I will plead with the Lord that the swarms of flies may depart from Pharaoh and his servants and from his people tomorrow. In other words, I'm going to make sure that God extends mercy to you only. Let not Pharaoh cheat again by not letting the people go to sacrifice to the Lord. Okay, I'll go pray for God's mercy, but do not go back on your word. You know, we call these the ten plagues. Each one is a curse, but there's also a miracle that goes along with it. I don't know if you noticed it. But with each of the curses, there's this second miracle that accompanies it. Certainly, God brings the curse, but he also removes the curse, and that's the miracle. Ten times. So the fact that Pharaoh doesn't call his court magicians this time tells us something about what Pharaoh knows already. So there is another 
only that's in the text. It's actually crystal clear, but you can't see it with your eyes. If this curse is to be lifted, only God will be the deliverer. Verse 30, Moses went and he prayed to Pharaoh, and the Lord did as Moses asked, and he removed the swarms of flies from Pharaoh. But Pharaoh hardened his heart this time also, and he did not let the people go. You know, the magicians had no trouble adding to the curse. But the one thing they could never do is, is put an end to the curse. And if Pharaoh and his people had the ears to hear, they would hear the message loud and clear. God is the only deliverer. Just with with blood and frogs and gnats and flies, God is the only one who can lift the curse. Pharaoh knows this in here, in his head. But in his heart, it is hard, and it will not stop and land there. So his heart, again, serves as a warning to you and me. When God shows his powers of judgment, it is an invitation not to look to him as an insurance policy for the short-term fix, but as the one true deliverer. The God who punishes sin is the only one who can also forgive sins. There's two threads that run from Exodus 8 through the whole Bible. Distinction, deliverer. Earlier we read this parable of the weeds. And Jesus told this story to explain what it will be like at the close of the age when he returns to gather his own people. There will be a distinction, sons who belong to the evil one and sons who belong to the kingdom, those who are righteous in God's sight. But there's also only one deliverer, only one who can lift the curse, and the deliverer is God's own son. Jesus the Christ. The message of Exodus 8 is an eternally relevant message. Through Christ, God proves himself protector of his people and the only giver of eternal life. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ask that you would bind your word to our hearts, that we would be not like Pharaoh, tender to your word. I pray that your people would have the ears to hear what your Spirit says and that you would lead us out of the Egypt of sin into eternal life with Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.